University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast. Under orders from the Secretary of Defense, women can now try out for all combat jobs in all services. We turn now to what some military officials call an enduring and pressing emergency, the rise in veteran suicides. But more than a dozen current and former cadets have told CBS News they reported their sexual assaults to the Air Force Academy only to then experience retaliation. Don't ask, don't tell is history, but there's still plenty to talk about. Hello and welcome back to Thank You for Your Service, a hard look at American civil military affairs from the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts. I'm Nick Pereso. And I'm Thomas Krasnation. A few episodes ago, we talked about reasons for joining the military, the stereotypes and the realities. Today, we'll be looking at who makes up the military. What are the demographics of our armed forces? What kinds of people join? And what kinds of recruiting efforts has the military put into practice? To help answer these questions, we spoke to Dave Phillips, a national correspondent with the New York Times based out of Colorado Springs. Dave covers the military and veterans, usually from a ground-level perspective, reporting among bases and troops around the country. He joined the Times in 2014, and he has won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting. Dave Phillips, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, no problem. So, Dave, could you tell our listeners just a quick bio about yourself, how you came to the Times, and what you cover for them? So, I started working for the New York Times in 2014 as a military correspondent. And what that's that's meant over the years is we have some folks who work in the Pentagon. Uh, We have some folks in Washington who specialize in, in uh, talking to spooky people who, who we never quote by name. But then we also have me, who is, I kind of write, I write about the Joes. I write about the people that actually make up the military, their lives, uh, sort of the on the ground stuff. Uh, and the, the reason I do that is I started my reporting career in Colorado Springs, Colorado, which has a big military base, uh, Army base, Fort Carson, but then also a number of Air Force bases. And I had just always been surrounded by people, my neighbors, the people I I, uh, met at the grocery store, people I would run into at barbecues who were uh, active duty or or recently so. And that really shaped my uh, approach uh, to writing about the military. It wasn't, I feel like there's there's a, generally in, in the media, military reporters write about the military in the same way sports reporters write about sports. Uh, they talk about strategy. They talk about who's winning and losing, uh, and they talk to the coaches, i.e., the generals. But they they rarely drill down to the actual people who are on the field. And so that's what I wanted to do with with what I do. Just talk to the normal people. Awesome. So the reason we reached out to you is because you wrote this article earlier this year with your colleague Tim Arango about the shifting demographics of military recruitment. What is it that led you and Tim to write this piece? This is actually a, an assignment. That doesn't happen too often. Most of the time we're bringing ideas to the mothership, but this time the mothership brought a, an idea to us. And they said, hey, with all this escalating tension with Iran, with the fact that we've been at war now for almost 20 years, we really have no idea who joins the military these days. You know, Can you write about that? Uh, and And... Uh, so that's what we did. Very broad. We just wanted to give a snapshot of who's there. And I think going into it, we didn't know what that answer would be. Uh, obviously, if, if you look at the demographics, the military is mostly men. Uh, 
but what are the other differences that might be surprising? We didn't know. And of course, the demographics we see now in the military are very different from what we saw many, many years ago. In 1973, after the Vietnam War, policymakers decided to end the draft and turn the U.S. military into an all-volunteer force. And that policy change would have huge effects on recruitment, on who we see joining the military. Can you describe to us what the U.S. military looked like before 1973, during the Vietnam War, compared to what it looks like now? When the draft was ended during Vietnam, there was a great deal of hand-wringing amongst policymakers that that might cause things to become unequal as, as time went on and, and trends started to emerge. And uh, those hand-wringers lost the argument because the draft was already really, really unequal. Uh, if you look at the, probably the, the example that most people are familiar with is, is President Trump uh, was, uh, he got something like four deferments, one of them because he got his, his doctor to write a letter saying that he, he had bad feet and couldn't go into the military. But that trend uh, was happening all across upper class and upper middle class America, where if you were in college or you had some connections, you didn't have to serve. You could either uh, get out of it entirely or uh, at least get some plum assignment where you were likely to not get killed. Another example is uh, President George W. Bush, who did his compulsory military service as a reservist in Texas. So there were, there were problems with uh, the draft and it being unequal. But the one thing that it did have going for it is geographically, it was pretty darn equal. You had local draft boards. They had a certain number of people they had to send based on uh, their populations, and, and they would have to send them. Once that ended, what we've started to see continually since then is a real geographic spread starting to happen. Places with higher income higher education level, mostly in the Northeast and, and northern parts of the United States, they really started to send fewer and fewer people to enlist in the military. More rural places and more and places with more military bases, they started to send proportionally more people. And uh, what emerged, you can see this on a map, uh, what emerged is that more and more the rates of participation were shifting to the South. The old uh, states of the Confederacy are, are they totally overrepresent now in in terms of the number of people per capita who enlist in the military. So what you're saying is during the draft, even though it may have been unequal in terms of income representation, it was representative of the geography of the country, whereas today that representation on geography has shifted away from the north and it's more congregated in the south now. Right. Uh, and numbers wise, it doesn't mean that there aren't people that enlist in the North or and that everyone's from the South. But if you look at the number of young eligible people in, in all of these states who could join, the Northeast, New England especially, is about 20 percent underrepresented. The Southeast is about 20 percent overrepresented. And so in your article, you have these two maps, and obviously we're an audio podcast, so people can't see them right now. But um, <laughs> This is great radio, huh? <laughs> yeah, but, but we're looking at these two maps, one from 1998 and one from 2018. Um, we were wondering if you could describe what this map represents 
and how it changes yeah. between 1998 and 2018 because it's really interesting. So all of the military branches uh, keep careful track of where uh, enlistments are coming from. Uh, you know, like like anyone else, they want to know their market, their demographics, uh, and so basically county by county, they have been tracking for a very long time. What you see in 1998 is is a fairly speckled map. There's there's places of high enlistment and places of low enlistment, uh, but they're they're kind of scattered all over uh, the country. And what you see uh, 20 years later is that a lot of the dots that mark high participation in the north are gone, and the spots that uh, uh, they're sort of a band of counties through the southeast. They, the army called this the crooked smile. It's this crescent that stretches basically from Washington, D.C. to uh, maybe Dallas uh, that just has really, really high participation. And that shows where people are reliably uh, coming from. And as we see these changing demographics, this this crooked smile developing, I think some people point to certain stereotypes about military recruiting as the reasons for those changing patterns. What are some of those stereotypes about recruiting that you've uncovered in your reporting? Yeah, uh, well, so like, listen, readers are are never shy to tell me when they think I'm an idiot. Uh, And I had all sorts of messages saying like, well, that part of the country is just more patriotic. Uh, I had all sorts of of different people postulating. I think some of the the more middle of the road assumptions were when you have places with low youth unemployment, uh, when you have places with low youth college participation, those are going to be the places where you're going to have the most luck recruiting, which makes sense, right? If there's a lack of other opportunities, then all of a sudden uh, military service starts to look like a very good option. But what the military uh, has realized through through research, through they essentially have used uh, AI and machine learning to go through, you know, 200, 2,000, I don't remember how many, but all these different demographic possibilities and say, is it this, is it that, is it college, is it unemployment? And it turns out that that common assumption is wrong, or at least it's not very significant. And the the big factors that really drive people to join the military is familiarity with the military. And by familiarity, what uh, they mean is this. If you know somebody that you are close to that is serving or has recently served, that more than anything else will steer you towards, you know, being predisposed predisposed to serve. So if you have a coach that you respect, a teacher, a pastor, a mother, a father, an uncle who uh, demystifies military service for you, uh, shows you what it's really about uh, rather than, the, I think, the images we get through uh, through TV and movies, which is all combat. That makes it way, way, way more uh, likely that you will sign up. So it's not necessarily about race, not necessarily about income. The number one factor is, are you familiar with a service member who can clear the air on what military service is actually about? That's part of it. Um, so... You said it's not about race, it's not about income. Of course, people are super complex and the military is, is huge, so there's lots of different race reasons. So sometimes it appears it is about race. Uh, I'll give you an example. 
black women join the military at twice the rate of white women, twice the rate. That's a huge, huge difference. Uh, and that may have to do with education and economic opportunity. But in general, if you throw all of the, the uh, people who are enlisting into one pot, the biggest factor is, do you know somebody? And, and the way that breaks down geographically, the reason we started seeing these geographic patterns with more people joining in the South is that uh, most of our most of our military installations are are below the Mason Dixon line. Uh, we used to have them all over, uh, especially during the Cold War when the military was much much bigger. Uh, but slowly, a lot of those more northern bases are uh, have been closed. Why? Because it's cold up there. You know, it limits your your training year, and so more and more of them have shifted south. You not only get active duty who are then living in those communities around those bases, but oftentimes uh, retired military tend to congregate around bases. So you get towns like Fayetteville uh, or uh, San Antonio, Texas, places that are just have these huge military communities. And so it's very easy there for you to grow up and know all sorts of people who served in the military. Also, those adults, whether active duty or retired, start shaping their communities to uh, encourage young people to join. And I'll tell you what I mean. So in a place like Fayetteville, if you go to high school there, one of the things that you can do is join the junior ROTC. And that means that you'll learn all these different things about uh, health, science, physical fitness, leadership through this program, and oftentimes even get class credit for it. Uh, and you wear a uniform to school once a week and it, it really sort of normalizes that idea of like, hey, this is cool and legit career field. And also when it gets time for you to get out of high school, all high schools across the country uh, take standardized tests, whether it's the SAT or the ACT to prepare for college. Well, a lot of these military communities also take the, the military's aptitude test. And what that does is it gives you, the individual student, a score and then, hey, you can look up all the, the career fields in the military that you qualify for that, in that score. So all of a sudden, here's this list of jobs the military will give you, many of them not combat related at all. You know, you could be a nurse, you could be a pilot, uh, you could be a you know, computer tech, you could be a mechanic. These things that really might appeal to people are there sitting right in front of them. So those opportunities are just spelled out for them and it, it becomes very easy to choose that route. Let me give you an example of how it works in other parts of the country. Mm -hmm. There are especially big cities. I'm, I'm sure all of us in the last couple of years have looked at maps of voting habits. And there's these blue islands where all the big cities in the United States are. And then the rest of the country is red. So those blue islands of, of more left-leaning people without a military tradition a lot of times they view military recruitment in the high schools as, as a con, as something that is preying on young people and keeping them from better opportunities such as college. And so not only do they not offer the military's aptitude test, but they will, uh, to the extent possible, keep recruiters out of the school. And so, you, you know, if you are a young person living in Seattle or uh, parts of Los Angeles, you may uh, never see a recruiter. You may never have that idea that like, oh, there's a lot of cool opportunities for me in the military. 
And so that's another thing that's driving the divide. There's not only a pull from these military communities, there's a push away from communities that are less familiar. You have a really interesting quote in your article from a woman who's in charge of high school instruction for the Los Angeles Unified School District. And she tells Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy that from an educator perspective, this is a quote, we sometimes feel they are targeting our black and brown students and students of poverty. Um, as somebody who covers this subject, what do you make of that impression? And is, is there truth to it? Uh, I think that there is truth to it. Uh, I've spent some time on the ground with recruiters, not for this story, but previous stories. And they know the high schools that reliably produce recruits. Um, and so let's assume that in any given city, you've got your your rich high schools and your poor high schools. Well, the rich high school, if you can even get in, their parents already have plans for them, right? And yeah, I'm not saying that there aren't people that that enlist in the military who come from very good backgrounds and then go on to do great things. I, I'm good friends with a number of them, but uh, it's not that common. And and so if they want to make their numbers, their monthly numbers, they're going to go to these places where they think there's a good chance that like, hey, this kid doesn't have plans for college. Or if he does, he doesn't have the money for college. So all of a sudden, I got a great pitch to him. I'm going to give you a career field. I'm going to give you money for college. I'm going to give you all the things that you don't have now. All you have to do is enlist. And that, that's really attractive. Now, if you're an administrator, is there concern that, that you might be steering someone into uh, a job that, that might be damaging? I think that comes from a good place, right? I mean, we've been fighting the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan for, for a long time, and there's a lot of people who've been really hurt there. Uh, even if they came back here and they're walking around with all limbs, there's certainly a lot of people who are struggling. As an educator, do you want to be aware of and concerned about that and make sure that your your students are making decisions based on having opportunities instead of not having opportunities? I think so. So I, I don't think there's a simple answer. I don't think that she is doing this from a place that is unpatriotic or or knee-jerk. I just think that she wants the best for her kids. We'll be right back. As China's role grows greater on the global stage, you want to stay up to date on the issues most pressing to China both domestically and internationally. Check out the Just China podcast for in-depth analysis on recent headlines and investigative reports on Chinese matters that affect our globalized world. We are Just China. Find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening. So returning to this idea of familiarity with the military being that key indicator, you write in your article, quote, that soldiers are increasingly making the United States military a family business. What is the significance of that? Whew, I think time will tell, right? Um, uh, so what I mean by family business is, is about 25% of the people who joined this year had an immediate family member, a parent, um, who uh, was serving in the military or had served. Uh, that's a, a pretty high number that shows that, that you are much more likely if you have a parent in the service to go into the service. Now, someone could look at that and say, well, that just shows that Uncle Sam's offering a square deal. You know, look, you get education benefits, health benefits, you know, these retirement benefits that that in so many other sectors are disappearing. 
I think that there's also some concern that as a republic, we want to share the burden of, of national service across the board. You know, and they, there's all sorts of, of dark tinfoil hat uh, scenarios about where things could go if the military becomes a really, really small and and uh, insulated community. You know, suddenly you have the Praetorian Guard. But I, I don't I if we ever get there, it's a long way off. But I, I think that there is a real sense that service to your country should be something broader than than a family business. And so with all of these demographic trends in recruitment that we've talked about, have you found that the military is doing anything to counteract those? So the military would really like to counteract those and, and it recognizes it. It doesn't think that it's sustainable to have such a small number of, of people that you draw from repeatedly. Here's what they are doing to try and reverse that trend. This year, they, they recognized that those blue cities I talked about where year after year they are under recruiting are are a giant untapped resource. I mean, that's where most of the population is. You take places like Houston, Denver, Chicago, Seattle, LA, um, San Francisco. There are tons and tons of people there that, that you could be reaching out to. So they've done that. And they have made progress in all of those communities this year just by showing up. Uh, the other thing that they're doing is really trying to... Um, stress that the military is, they're trying to play down the combat aspect of it. I think they figure because if you're attracted to the idea of a career in combat arms, you'll come to their door anyway. But that there's lots of other things that, that one can do for the military that have nothing to do with that. You know, it may be logistics, it may be healthcare, it may be computers, all these fields that people might want to go into anyway, they want to sell it as, uh, hey, we'll train you to do it. And then we'll pay for college instead of you going and paying for college and then having no experience uh, in the field. You know, so that's a very attractive message. If, if you can get these kids to recognize that there are all sorts of career fields that that are are useful, even if they only plan to stay in for one enlistment. You know, will the, the military need to do more or something more drastic than that uh, if this, this trend continues? I don't know. I don't think we're to a, an alarm point yet. It's just that that. The trend is emerging and, and they're watching and trying to steer things back towards, towards the middle. So Dave, you have this map of 1998 in your article and the map of 2018. Suppose it's 2038. What do you want the force to look like and what do you think it will actually look like? Well, by 2038, we'll probably have like, uh, you know, autonomous drone swarms. So like the number of, <laughs> of enlistees we'll need is totally lower, right? So it, it'll probably be blank. No, they, we won't need a human army anymore, right? Um, I, so like, I think the trend's going to continue, right? Uh, it's a, ultimately an equality issue. And more and more people are ha have fewer and fewer options. Uh, the military offers a, a great deal in terms of, of benefits, security, things you can't find elsewhere. Uh, and so I, I think as long as that is true, that family business will continue. We've been talking about all of these nationwide trends in recruitment and demographics in the military. Why do you think this is an issue of national importance that people should really care about? Ultimately, it's a question of fairness. You know, is it is it fair for us to let a very small uh, subsection of the population go back to Iraq and Afghanistan 10 times? 
So I live a couple miles from Fort Carson where 10th Group Special Forces are. And guys there who are my age, they've spent their entire adult life fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and, you know, it's not hard to walk around the rest of the country and have everybody forget that those wars are even still going on. Is that right? And, and what are the, you know, unseen implications of putting all that burden on a very small number of people? I think ultimately the more isolated the group of people fighting is, the more likely it is that we have these unhealthy and unsustainable conflicts because we can keep them smoldering for a generation and most of the population won't be affected. I feel like we have to share the burden and that will give us a healthier outlook on our international affairs. Well, Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Um, We really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, no problem. I appreciate you guys. Yeah. Thanks Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us today on Thank You for Your Service. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at TYFYS underscore podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. So you'll get our next episode as soon as it's released. Thank You for Your Service is produced by Ashwarya Kumar. Additional production support came from Michelle Tran and Morgan Wade. Special thanks to Mike Robinson and Tom Latanzio. We record here at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Thank You for Your Service is a production of the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast and does not necessarily represent the official positions of the Department of Defense or the U.S. government. I'm Thomas Krasnation. And I'm Nick Pereso. See you next time.